a lot of people are now buying goods through e-commerce versus going to bricks and mortar retail. And as a result of that, naturally you're seeing this demand for distribution space rising. Where are these goods going to be stored? You're listening to The Life and Money Show, a podcast that brings you the stories and strategies of people who are living a meaningful and intentional life by design, building true wealth for their families and impacting the world around them. And now here are your hosts, Annie Dickerson and Julie Lamb. Hello, everyone. Annie Dickerson here together with the amazing Julie Lamb. Julie, how are you today? Oh, you got fantastic. I thought I was going to get the wham, bam, Julie Lamb, but you know, know, I'll take the, I gotta just think how you doing. That else. was so good. <laughs> I know. I love I know. that. That was so fun. I what was like, yeah, kids? what's up? Felt like rolling into the room, like, yeah, I'm here. <laughs> I think yeah, the, other t- the words that rhyme with lamb jam, cram, cram jam lamb. There we go. (laughs) If there's anybody who's going to figure out the answer to this, it's you. It's definitely not me. (laughs) I sit there with like a blank paper trying to figure it out. No. Yeah. Everything's going good. We're officially on the road and at our first official destination of being on the road. So we're currently in Portland, Oregon and a little bit rainy here right now, but the family is out. So I was able to record this podcast in peace and not have toes showing up in the zoom recording and kids (laughs) screaming in the background. So yeah, but it's been fun. They're out exploring right now, even though it's drizzling and raining a little bit, but yeah, it's fun. Fun. Yeah, that's what I remember about living in the Pacific Northwest is before you get there, you're like, oh, rain and you get there and it's just it's part of life. Like mm-hmm. I remember when we lived in Vancouver, it was drizzling, raining, but the kids were still like at school. They would still be outside having outdoor recess. They yep. had their rain, yep. rain gear on, yep. rain hats and umbrellas and boots and everything. And because otherwise yep. they would just be indoors for like nine months All out the of time. the year. Yep. Yeah. So fun. It's pretty cute because I I see the same thing here with just like the neighborhood kids and everybody's out still wearing their raincoats and whatnot. So I did pack ours with the expectation that we would hit some rain. But yeah, so fun. Of course you did. That car fits like everything. You've got like everything with you. (laughs) I know. We literally packed the house. It's so funny. The the other day when we left on Monday, I was like, oh my gosh, I think we have everything. We, there was literally like nothing left in our house, but it is. That's the way I feel secure. I'm like, yeah, I can't go wrong. And the funny thing is every place that we've been so far making our way up to Portland has had everything we need, needed stools. And my whole kitchen kit has been sitting closed because I haven't needed it. And so anyway, (laughs) Well, that is fantastic. I mean, kudos to you just for getting on the road. I know sometimes that's the hardest part is just getting out the door and takes so much planning and drive and determination to just plan something, especially something as huge as the trip that you're on. There's so many little pieces and you've really got to know your why for going on a trip like that to push through all of that and to make Mm -hmm. it happen, right? Which is such an important theme in our conversation today with Matt Riccadella. He's the principal and managing partner of Crystal View Capital. And Matt started out, he didn't know that he was going to get into commercial real estate and self-storage and manufactured housing communities, which is what he and his firm specialize in today. But he started out selling houses. He started out as a realtor. And he talks about how early on in his career, he didn't really know where he was going to take it, but he really had that drive and that determination to go out and hustle to really find that business. And more importantly, to find how he can add value to people, which is still what he's doing today and a big part of why they're seeing the success they're seeing. Yeah, it was a pretty interesting conversation because I feel like he had a lot of really great nuggets about life that you don't often get to hear from someone in his position. And so it was really fun to pluck that out of him. But one of the questions that I asked earlier on in the show was around confidence and how did he get the confidence to be able to raise money? And I think that a lot of 
people out there think about wanting to scale and grow and maybe getting over to the active side, consider raising money, but they stop because they think that it's not for them or that it's too hard or no one would invest with them. And so it was interesting to hear his response. And I think it's very much also in alignment. What I faced as an entrepreneur three or four years ago when we started out was really that you had to have a belief in yourself and a belief in the asset class and what you were doing. And that was the biggest thing. I think so often you're trying to convince other people in, to invest with you, but really it was like I had to turn inward and ask myself, did I believe in me and what I was doing? And if I could answer that question, yes, with absolute certainty, it made raising money and doing everything that we do so much easier. And so it's so interesting how you have to almost instead of looking outward for that certainty, almost turn inward for the certainty and find it within yourself to be able to do what you need to do as a capital raiser and in syndication. So, but yeah, that was just the beginning part of the show, but we got to tap him and talk about industrial. We got to talk about mobile home parks. We talked about self-storage. We talked about the impact of COVID, which I think is always interesting because as we look, when we talk about resilient asset classes, it's great because are we in a recession? I don't know. But whenever I ask this question, what has the impact been? I would say like 90% of the time I get the answer that if anything, we've actually done better in a, a recession. And even folks that we've talked to, just networking and whatnot, how did you fare? People have been in the space for 10, 20 years. How did you fare in the last downturn? And, and more times than not, if they're in multifamily storage or mobile home parks, they say that they're actually things went better for them in that time, which is such a testament to why we focus on multifamily and mobile home parks and so storage and all of that good stuff. But was just a great overall conversation to have his insights from investing over the last 13 years. So it was a great call. Mm-hmm. Podcast. And for all of our listeners out there, you know, that lesson about really investing in yourself first and foremost, is so key, whether you're syndicating properties or you're investing in them. And so for all of our listeners out there who might be new to the real estate syndication space, a great place to start is to grab a free copy of our book. It's called Investing for Good. We've got a free hardcover copy for all of you. Just go to goodegginvestments.com slash book. And with that, let's dive into our conversation with Matt Riccadella. Matt, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm good. How are you, Annie? I am swell. I never say swell, but I don't know why that word just came to mind just then. But anyway, (laughs) Matt, I know that at Crystal View Capital, your team specializes in the acquisition and management of self-storage facilities and manufactured housing communities. Now, both Julie and I are big proponents of self-storage and manufactured housing communities, as we know that they are recession resilient and can be a great way to diversify your portfolio. So start by telling us a little bit about how you got your start in real estate and then you know what led you to these asset classes in particular. Yeah, I'd be happy to. Thank you, Annie and Julie. I'm glad to join you guys today. Appreciate it. So my start actually started back in Southern California in real estate back in 2002. I was a residential realtor. And the way I built my business, my book of business at that time, was I did a lot of phone prospecting. So it was mostly cold calling is how I built my business up. And that worked out well. And from there, that kind of morphed into a house flipping business. I started Instead of trying to list homes, I started buying them and making improvements and selling them and making a nice spread. And what I said at that point in time was it's, it's great to make this type of income, but it's dependent on my daily activities to do the next deal. If I don't do another deal, I'm not going to get paid again. So I thought, wouldn't it be great to have some sort of perpetual cash flow coming in month in and month out, year in and year out? regardless of what I'm doing. So I got involved in income producing commercial real estate and I was involved in all asset classes, industrial, retail, multifamily, office. So I've kind of done it all. And what I found is time and time again, manufactured housing communities and storage not only produced the most consistent stream of free cash flow, but I could do it all across the country at ease once I understood the operations. 
the fundamentals of operating these asset classes. So in the beginning, I got started just doing storage and mobile home communities for my own account. I would go out there and raise capital from private investors and syndicate deals and did really well and sold some. And that was fantastic. But then, you know, I thought to myself, I think I'm onto something because this is working, but I'm limited because my capital is finite. So what I wanted to do is scale up. And that brings me to where I am today with managing several funds throughout the country. We own assets throughout the country. and We have several hundred million dollars of assets under management. Wow. What a story. So you started out with no intention of getting into commercial real estate. You were just, you're cold calling, which is, you must have built a thick skin through that. I hear all these crazy stories about people cold calling. And you just think of the cartoon characters with like the six phones going at once. So I'm sure it was keeping you busy, but you were able to build a book of business through that. You saw some success, but you also got into flipping. So you, you were, I could tell that you were entrepreneurial from the start. Was it always your intention to go into business for yourself? Was that always something you knew you wanted to do growing up? Yeah, I'm from New York originally and come from restaurant business, family restaurants. So I learned the value of hard work as a young age. At nine years old, I started washing dishes in my father's restaurant. And and I thought to myself, well, when I get older, I don't want to be involved in this type of business because it's hard work. The restaurant business, if you've been involved with it, you know what I mean. It's very hard work. So I knew I wanted to go out to business on my own. I didn't want to be in the family business and I didn't want to be in the restaurant business. And I wanted to get as far away as possible. So I left New York, came to California, and that was kind of my start. So, but to answer your question, I always knew that that I wanted to call my own shots and control my own destiny. So that's... Especially after being forced to wash all those dishes at age nine, I'm sure... (laughs) I still think about that. If things don't work out, I'll be back washing dishes. So there I'm you very go. careful. Yeah. <laughs> You've always got a plan B. So that's important. right. It's not very attractive, but it's a plan B that keeps me grounded and keeps make sure I'm successful in plan A. Yeah. So I'm curious on your timeline, just for anybody who might be listening, I always like to try to understand how long it took you to get from 2002 cold calling to house flipping, to starting to syndicate. Can you give us an idea of that? Like when, so you started in 2002 and then when did you start doing the house flipping? I bought my first, this funny story. One day I called an older gentleman in Long Beach, California. He had a duplex. I'm trying to list it. He said to me, well, why don't you buy it? And at this state, gosh, I think I was 22. And I'm mm-hmm. thinking, well, I have trouble getting a $500 credit card. How am I going to buy this place? (laughs) But if you recall, if you were in the game back then, that was the time where anybody could get a loan. They had those NAGAM loans and it was stated. It was very, very easy. No underwriting. So You couldn't get a $500 credit card, but you could get a loan on a house. (laughs) I got the house. I got the house. I bought it for... I remember it was $314,000. Two years later, I sell it for $700,000. What? So wow. wow. During that heyday back with the, the housing market in Southern California it was white hot. I was very fortunate and a beneficiary of a very good market. So it was, it was great timing for me. But to answer your question, Julie, the time frame from 02 to basically to syndicate my own deals I started syndicating deals in 07, 08. So it took me six years to get from my launching pad of being a realtor to syndicating deals. And it was just the discipline, just show up every day, understand what you want to accomplish and grind it out. And you learn, you make some mistakes and you learn from them and you keep showing up and showing up and try to stay disciplined and don't make any irrational decisions because I knew I was going to lose it all and go back to washing dishes. So I always kept that discipline and I keep it to this day. I think it's very important as an investor to have protect the downside and let the upside take care of itself is our motto. And were you still in Southern California in 2008? I was. Yeah. I moved to Vegas in 2010. Okay. When you started syndicating deals in 2008, which 
probably was a great time, I'm assuming, to, to start doing this. I wish I started doing this in 2008. But where were you buying real estate at that time? Was it in California or no? It was. I was, it was doing some industrial deals. I remember one in particular was in Signal Hill, California, which is right next to Long Beach. So it was that Southern LA County area. I, I did several deals there, most of them around the Long Beach area. But then I actually did my first, well, my first large mobile home park deal was in Wisconsin in 2008. It's, it's an interesting story. It's a deal I still have to this day. So it's a testament to you buy an asset and you keep it and you keep adding value to it, doing the right things, being a good operator. And over 10, 12 years, now I've got something that's producing significant free cash flow a year, five, $600,000 a year in free cash flow on this one deal that I bought 12 years ago, but continually plowed all of my cash flow back into the deal. I kept increasing occupancy, making improvements. So there was a, a saying that a mentor of mine once said, he said, all you have to do is one deal one time. And that was the beauty of commercial real estate. If you go big and you buy right and you manage right, you only have to do it once. From there, you, you disguise the limit. I didn't stop there, but you could become on one deal. How did you really quick, I wanted to just ask, how did you get the confidence at that point? And maybe you got it from your cold calling days, but how did you get the confidence at that point to syndicate and ask for money, right? Because I think a lot of people who are sometimes passive and think they want to go active, consider this route, but they feel like it's so hard. They're like, who's going to give me money? I don't have any experience. And I've never syndicated a deal before. I don't have a track record. How did you get that confidence to say, you know what, I'm confident enough in my skills and I believe in this asset class, even though I've never done it before, and I'm going to go out there and ask for money. How did you get from where you were to doing that first deal? I think you answered it, that confidence. For me in particular, it was I believed in the asset and more importantly, I believed in myself. And I took those two things and I went out there and I thought, you know what, there's a lot of money managers out there. Some are good, some are not so good. I might be newer, but I believe in those two things. And I have no problem asking this person for money because I believe I'm going to add value to their life. I'm going to add value to this investment for them, probably better than anyone else. And I still believe that to this day. And I ask a lot of people for money, a lot more than I did back then. And if I didn't believe in myself and I didn't believe in what I was doing, I don't think I would feel very comfortable asking people for money. So talk yeah. a little bit about the freedom side of things, because I'm sure a lot of people heard what you said a little while back about you're getting five, 600,000 in cash flow. You could just live on that. Why work? Why continue the grind? Why continue to ask more people for money? What is that thing that drives you to continue to do these deals? Well, that is a great question. That's almost like a life question versus an investment question. So you're kind of putting me on the spot there. And I don't think there's a right answer for everybody. It's different. For some people, it's for their family. For other people, it's to provide value to others. For me, I think it's a multitude of reasons. I think that I'm meant to push the limits and see how far I could go. I believe, you know, I'm not educated in a formal sense, but I believe there's something exceptional I could do. And this is my platform. So to answer your question, I'm not going to stop. I'm going to see how far I could take this thing. And not only that, there's people that I work with on a daily basis, my investors, my team, and to bring value into their lives and to see them experience freedom is almost, if not more exhilarating than for myself. So I think now that I've matured a bit from being 22, to see other people experience that is probably the, the drive that makes me push and keep going. And I enjoy the process. It's a game at the end of the day. I look at it like a sport. Once you get good at something, like look at a good golfer or an ice skater or whatever they are, if they achieve a certain level of success, are they going to say, well, I won the master's tournament. I guess I'm going to hang it up now and I'm going to sit on the couch for the rest of my life. I feel the same way about what I do. 
<laughs> I'm just having a good time at this point. Mm -hmm. You don't seem like the kind who would sit on the couch for the rest of the of your life. I mean, that's probably what no. that drive to keep getting better and better and push the limits. That's probably exactly why your investors trust you and you've drawn such great team members to your business. And so, yeah, thank you for indulging me. I always love getting to people's like the core of like, if you could sit on, you could sit on a beach all day, but you're not. So tell us why. So that was perfect. So now you've had experience over the years in all these different types of assets from single families to flipping to larger industrial, commercial, all sorts of commercial assets. And so you mentioned out of all of that, you saw something really special in self-storage and manufactured housing communities. So tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, great question. So I think there's some dynamics about these asset classes that make them unique and separate from the rest of the four food groups, and that being retail, industrial, multifamily, and office, I would consider these more niche asset classes. And the thing about them, like when I think about mobile home communities in particular, I think about supply and demand. Like look at multifamily and think about, they could build a new apartment complex down the street. They could have lower rent than you can at your apartment complex, and they could take your tenants from you. And there's more and more supply that may be coming to the market. The thing that's interesting about manufactured housing communities is there is no new supply coming to the market. So no municipality in North America is granting permits to build manufactured housing communities. There might be one, there might be two, but by and large, you don't see it happen. In fact, if anything, you're seeing supply shrink because you're seeing communities and some of them are being repurposed and redeveloped into condos or other uses. But the demand continues to rise. So you've got this interesting curve where you've got a, a rising demand and you've got shrinking supply and that allows you to raise prices and you don't have any tenant turnover. In all the other asset classes, you raise your prices, you're going to lose tenants. Here you will as well, but there's no new demand coming to market. So if you service your residents, if you're a good landlord, if you're fair, even though you raise your prices, it's too cost prohibitive for them to move. And there's really not many places for them to move to. So as a result of that, you've got very steady cash flow. So that's the thing about manufactured housing communities for me in particular that makes it compelling. On the storage side, before we get to storage, can I ask you yeah. one thing about manufactured housing communities that I think will might really resonate with our listeners? So the people who invest in manufactured housing communities are typically not the same people who live in them, right? So when you invest in multifamily, most of our investors understand, oh, I've rented an apartment before. I understand how it works, what it's like there, what the feel is like, how you move in and out, how all of it works. When it comes to manufactured housing communities, somebody who's investing $100,000, $200,000 might never have even set foot in a manufactured housing community. So can you tell us a little bit about, you know, is there truly demand and, you know, what, what are these communities like and why is it such a recession resilient asset class? Well, I think we're one of the last bastions of affordable housing out there. If you think about it, the there's a huge segment in the population that is looking for affordable housing. I mean, there's government assistance, and then there's what we do, where folks like the idea of having their own yard and owning their own home, and we provide that for them. So I don't think there's ever going to be a time in this country where there's not a demand for affordable housing. In fact, it continues to rise and rise. So as long as that doesn't change, what we do is going to be in very high demand. I have a quick question on acquisitions. I know mobile home parks, just like multifamily and self-storage, it's a very difficult time to find good, solid deals that have a lot of meat on the bone right now. And I see a lot of deals flying around as a passive investor myself too, where the underwriting is very aggressive and doesn't make a ton of sense. 
how are you guys navigating these waters where we're at today? Because I, from what I understand, it's very similar to what's happening in the multifamily space. How are you navigating those waters and finding those good deals for your investors? Yeah, so I think it's similar across the board in all asset classes, quite frankly, Julie. I mean, you've got this now push. There's so much liquidity in the system, right? And all of those dollars are out there looking for yield. And what that's doing is it's it's compressing cap rates and it's blowing out valuation. So it's making it, to your point, it's making it more challenging to find attractive investments where there is an upside, where there is a nice, strong cash flow going in, good relative yield. So to answer the question, it's kind of, I think you'll, you'll find this interesting. It all goes back to 2002 and the phone. So I haven't changed a thing of how we find these deals. I'm not on the phone myself making these calls, but we actually have a team of full-time callers. And they're not only calling, they're texting, they're emailing, they're making a lot of phone calls, but we're building relationships with owners across the country. And we do actually 92% of our deals off market. So in, in that, we're not competing with the rest of the buyer pool out there, but we're also bringing value to these owners because we're it's certainty of execution. When we go under contract, we have a reputation of taking this deal to the finish line and actually closing. A lot of buyers are time wasters. They'll get sellers under contract and then they won't perform. We're known to perform. And we make the transaction process seamless. We have an entire team that works with these sellers to make the, the transaction as seamless and as efficient as possible. And we keep it confidential. A lot of them don't want their tenants to know or family members. So we make this whole process very easy for them and we pay a fair price and we receive a fair price for ourselves. So it's it's really a win-win, but that's allowed us to buy at good valuations with some really good upside. We'll get back to our conversation with Matt in just a minute. Have you been thinking about investing in real estate, but aren't sure you have the time or the desire to manage the investment? Perhaps you're afraid, like we were, that you'll make the mistake of choosing the wrong market or the wrong team and lose your entire investment. Well, that's exactly why we created the Good Egg Investor Club. We do the work of identifying solid real estate investment opportunities in the best markets around the country and then partner with you to acquire these investments and then we'll all share in the returns. We'll identify the growing markets, strong, experienced teams, and the solid deals. We do all the heavy lifting of managing the tenants and the renovations, and as a passive partner, you get to enjoy all the benefits of investing in real estate, monthly cash flow, long-term appreciation, and the ongoing tax benefits. When we first discovered passive investing through real estate syndications, we realized it fit perfectly into our busy lives. We could put our money to work for our families, work less, and get more time back in our days so that we could focus on what matters most and discover our true passion and purpose in life. We've now helped hundreds of people invest passively in real estate syndications and are seeing the positive impact it's had on their lives. We invite you to partner with us by joining the Good Egg Investor Club today so you can start putting your money to work for you and get more time back in your day because we know that when people have more time in their days, they can do the true work they were intended to do and the world will be a better place. To sign up for the Good Egg Investor Club, go to goodegginvestments.com slash invest and we'll take it from there. That's goodegginvestments.com slash invest. And now, back to our chat with Matt Riccadella. Yeah, I've heard so much of the same from other people in the multifamily space as well. The people who are having getting access to those good deals are the folks who have like a whole team of acquisitions team underwriting deals, looking at off all off-market deals, doing that cold calling, looking at 100 to 200 deals a month. And there's no way that without that team, you're going to be able to find those good deals. So that's a quick tip for our, anyone who's listening who is an investor, ask, ask how they're finding these good deals because you want to know that you're getting the best deal in this crazy market right now. And that's the only way 
that I've seen good deals being done is that they're off market and that they have a whole team of people that this is all they do all day, every day is scour and look for deals. So love that. Love that answer. Great. Can we get back to where we left off? Um, we kind of diverted away from mobile home parks, but we can jump back in talking about, I think we're going to chat about self-storage. Yeah, sure. So I think back to Annie's question, why do we like storage? To answer your question on that one, very strong free cash flow. I mean, it's the same concept as we buy these deals off market. A lot of them are unprofessionally managed. When I say unprofessional, it's only one or two locations for the most part. And we have an entire infrastructure. So we have a whole marketing team. We have a whole asset management team. So when we come into these properties, there's small tweaks that we can make operationally that are going to create a lot of value. We maximize the upside of the property by pushing revenues to their maximum potential, by pushing occupancy to its maximum potential, finding synergy and expenses. Can we have a manager close by at another facility we own also manage the new one that we're buying and cut down on expenses? This is all pushing the net operating income higher. And then from there, we're going to have a more attractive value in the market, higher free cash flow. So the thing I like about storage, the other thing is very low operating expenses. When you look at multifamily or let's call it multi-tenant office or retail when your tenants move out in those property types, typically you got to go in, you got to do a lot of tenant improvements to attract another tenant. Sometimes this can cost tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, or millions of dollars. In our industry, when a tenant moves out, if it's in a decent market, all you got to do is sweep the unit out, go ahead and re-rent it, put a lock on there, and you're set. You've got another tenant. Very low overhead, low maintenance. I mean, Basically, all you're maintaining is doors, springs, lights, roads, things of that sort. So you're not maintaining sinks, roofs you do, but a lot of the more expensive repair and maintenance items that you're going to see at some of the other asset classes, you're not going to have at self-storage. So it makes it very attractive on the cash flow side. So talk to us a little bit about industrial. You mentioned that you did a little bit there. We've had a couple of guests now on the show recently talk a little bit about, we got to do an intro on industrial and that was so much fun. I think it's so relevant to where we're at in the economy with everything going on. I think industrial is a great place to be. I think retail is slowly, slowly dying. It's slow death. And I think industrial warehouses and manufacturing is a good place to be. Talk to us about that and why you see that as being a good asset class to be in, especially given where we're at right now. Yes, we do own industrial as well. We actually have a large distribution facility in Colorado Springs. We just signed a large lease due to confidentiality. I can't share the tenant, but it's a $500 million plus revenue per year company. So very strong tenant. But I think due to the Amazon effect, to answer your question, Julie, I mean, a lot of people are now buying goods through e-commerce versus going to bricks and mortar retail. And as a result of that, naturally, you're seeing this, this demand for distribution space rising. Where are these goods going to be stored? And they say that the, the term of the day is last mile. So you want to be close to the urban centers as possible on these facilities because it's basically the last stop until you get to the consumer. So for us, we like last mile distribution space. That's where we like to focus. And I don't think this trend abating, I don't see this trend abating anytime soon. If anything, I see more and more people buying goods online versus bricks and mortar locations. So for the near term or even for the long term, I think that it's a very attractive place to have exposure. And so you moved into a fund structure. Did yeah. I hear you say that correctly? So yeah. talk to us a little bit about that. Why? I mean, as an investor, if an investor is listening to this and they're thinking, oh, all these asset classes sound great. How do you organize it? Do you have all of these different asset classes in one fund? Do you have like a industrial fund, a mobile home park fund? And then explain why the reasoning behind the way you have it set up. Yeah. So we now are on our third fund which is almost fully subscribed. Our, I'll tell you a little bit about our first fund. It was a smaller offering. It was a $10 million equity offering. It's actually gone full cycle. And what that means is we bought all the assets and we've sold them all off. As a result of that, the returns in that first fund were basically 47%. So it was very, very strong returns that we delivered to our partners. 
So we launched a second fund. That strategy on that first fund was kind of across the board. We went into all asset classes, multifamily, office, retail, industrial, self-storage, mobile home parks. What we found is it was very challenging to manage all of these different asset classes and to create the efficiencies in one asset management team to do it was quite challenging because there's nuances between managing office and retail versus mobile home parks and storage. So what we did is we said, where were our most attractive returns? And it all came back to the storage of the mobile home park. So our second fund, we created a mandate, a a fund directive where we were only going to invest in those two asset classes. So that's what we did. It was a $35 million offer and due to demand, it was oversubscribed. We raised 58 million. Right now, it looks like that we're tracking based upon our projections about a 35% return in that fund. We've made an 8% preferred return, which is a cash on cash return to our limited partners for every quarter since the fund's inception. And actually in the first quarter of 2021, we've already distributed about $19 million to our partners in that second fund in the form of distribution. So it's also been fantastic in terms of the returns that we've delivered. We went off and we launched our third fund right in the middle of the pandemic, which was November of last year. That was a $95 million offering. Already, we've raised about $65 million of equity. I would anticipate probably in the next 60 days, that fund will be fully subscribed. But at the same strategy, manufactured housing and self-storage facilities. So that's where we are today. I think the fund structure, to answer your question, Julie, all of these assets, we don't have separate funds for storage and manufactured housing. They all go in based upon the timing of the fund. They all go into one fund. So the investors get a lot of diversification. That's the advantage. When you go into a syndication, you're going to either live or die on that one deal. If you hit home run, if you strike out, then you lost your money on that deal. In the fund structure, you can strike out on a deal and your doubles, your triples, and your home runs are more going to make up for that strikeout. So you've got this diversification, not only deal-wise, but also geography-wise. We're spread out all over the country. So if one geography takes a turn for the worst, you've still got assets all spread out throughout the country that typically they're not going to experience similar downturns at the same time. So you've got this diversification element, which I think is very attractive for partners going into the fund. And and that's why I put my own money into my funds, because I also invest as a limited partner right alongside my investors, because I think a couple things. Number one, there's nothing like having skin in the game and having that alignment of interest with your partners if you're a promoter. That's the other thing going back to how do you have this confidence to pitch these deals It's not as though I'm just a sponsor in these deals. My money is invested right alongside theirs. So we've got this strong bond and this alignment of interest. We're going to win or lose together. And the second reason I do it, quite frankly, is probably for selfish reasons. I don't know where I could get a better return. So I continue to pump my own returns right back in as an investor within my funds. And I plan to continue that. We're going to launch our fourth fund later on this year. And we're not going to stop. We're going to keep going. So I love it. So you mentioned, you know, diversification, which I think is so key with everything that we have going on right now. Talk to us a little bit about what the impact of COVID has been, if any, on the assets, the funds, and then talk to us a little bit about what you see happening in the near term in the next year or so, and then maybe give us an idea of where you think things are heading after that. Yeah, no, I think uh, a lot of questions here in one. So COVID, first and foremost, obviously, it was very concerned. Rewind March 2020. None of us knew what was going to happen, right? I expected the worst. Quite honestly, I, I panicked. I got really involved in operations. I spoke to our managers personally on a daily basis. I wanted to see if rents were coming in. They weren't. Why? What were our tenants saying? What kind of job losses were we experiencing? Were we going to have this tremendous fall off in terms of collections and occupancy? But the answer was 
relatively unscathed we went through this thing, if not increases in occupancy, if not increases in collections, which to me, I was not expecting. It was a very pleasant surprise. And I think it's a testament to two things. Number one, the asset classes and their resiliency, their defensive nature in down markets, because if we were in retail and office, I probably wouldn't be singing this tune. And secondly, it was our team, the way the team at the corporate level and our asset managers rallied and we came together as a team and it was all hands on deck, meetings every single day. Where could we support our managers? How could we support our tenants to ensure that they would continue to pay rent? If they couldn't, could we create a plan for them to pay portions of their rent and become current in the future once they got their stimulus checks or once they were reemployed? So just that hands-on approach. And that's what makes us very, very different from other operators. A lot of my peers and competitors, they don't manage their own assets. They outsource that function to some third party. Here at Crystal View, we want our thumb on the pulse of what's going on on a daily basis because that's where we could drive value. So that those two things coming together really attributed to our success during COVID. Your second question, where do we see markets going in the next year or two? I mean, I wish I had that crystal ball. Whenever I get that question, I always remember what Warren Buffett said. He said, I can't time markets. And when he says he can't time markets, I'm not even going to try. However, with that being said, um, I think we're in an interesting point right now. And I, inflation is a concern for sure. Um, the Fed says it's transitory, may or may not be the case. Another interesting dynamic about our asset classes, if we experience a point where there's very high inflation, I think it's going to be detrimental in the sense that our cost of capital is going to rise because rates are going to increase. And I think that's going to negatively affect asset values. On the flip side, I think the mitigant to that is the nature of our leases. Our leases are very short term in nature. They're month to month for the most part. The advantage of that, looking at once again, look at retail, look at industrial, look at office, it's not uncommon that those leases are five to 10 years. Now, traditionally, that would be construed as stability and safe because you've got this long-term lease. However, in an inflationary environment where the inflation is outpacing your bumps or your, your increases on an annual basis, that's actually going to cut into your value because your income doesn't catch up to the inflation. But for us, given that it's month to month, we could keep up with that inflationary pressure by going up 3%, 5%, 10% a year if we have to, to get in front of that inflation curve. And I think that's going to mitigate that increase in interest rates. So I think we're in a strong place, once again, in these two asset classes. So interesting. I love being able to get strategic with real estate to mitigate risk. There's so many different options. It's one of the things that I loved when I first got into the space a little bit more seriously was that there's so many different ways you can cut the pie and protect yourself and or make a return, right? And so that's the fun part about what we get to do. So thank you for your crystal ball response. I think it was great. I always just like to get insight from people who have been in the business for a long time. Not that we're looking for the right answer, but more just to get your expert opinion and insight so that others who are listening can kind of take away something from you and what your opinions might be about what's happening and you know what could be coming down the pipeline. So thank you for that. All right. So we're going to move into the Life and Money Show Spotlight Round, where we're going to ask you a couple of questions around life and money. You've answered a couple of questions we already asked you around life and money, um, but we're going to ask you these last three questions. And uh, yeah, would love it. We get to hear your, your responses. So the first question is around your life and money. So what is one thing that you're doing right now to live a meaningful and intentional life by design? I read this right before this podcast and it's such a good question it's, and it's a tough one to answer and I thought about it I think for me at this juncture in my life what I'm most intentional about is our investors and our team and how could I add value to their life and I think specifically about our team and I see myself and a lot of people that I work with on a daily basis a lot of them 
quite frankly, are a lot smarter than I am. They have a lot more pedigree than I do, but a lot of them are like me where they did not really go to a, a formal education. They don't have the right contacts, the right background, and none of the things that lead you to believe this person's going to be successful in life. However, they have two things that are probably more important than anything else. They have drive, determination. And for me, what I'm most intentional about is recognizing that in people and how could I strategically direction them to bring out their dreams and their desires? Because we all have something that we want to accomplish in life, right? And, and some of us have been led to believe that we're not going to be able to do it because we don't have the right schooling or the right background. And if I could maybe help some of these people to live their dreams and encourage them in some way and show them that they can make a difference and they have all the right things inside and provide the platform, more importantly, with Crystal View for them to do that. And I see that unfold. For me, there's almost nothing that's giving me more satisfaction or joy in my life than that, even more than any financial rewards that I'm receiving, which are quite significant, more than I ever expected to this point. But to see other people live out their dreams is the most rewarding thing for me at this stage. So that's my long-winded answer to that. First yeah. Well, I love it. I love it. I couldn't be more in agreement with you. So much of what Annie and I do and the why and all of that and how we look at very same, how we look at building our team over the last year, we've grown and scaled our team and grown our investor base as well. And for us, it's all about how can we add more value, not only in our team, but also in our coaching program that we have as well. That's a question that Annie and I probably ask ourselves daily is how can we add more value? So love that. All right. Second question is around others' life and money. So what is one life or money hack that you can share that will make an impact in others' lives right now? Well, I think for me, when you say hack, I presume what you mean is what's one thing people are doing that's an impediment for what they want to achieve financially, if I'm understanding the question. So I think probably the worst thing people can do, and I see this and I'm sure you see it all the time, is outspending your income. You see a lot of people that they may make a lot of money, but they take that money very quickly and they go out and they buy fancy houses and fancy cars. So at the end of the day, what's their net worth? Somebody who's making a million dollars, their net worth may not be any different than somebody making $30,000 per year. So I think the hack is outspending your income and the way around that is being disciplined and underspending your income and taking that savings and investing it and investing it smart, not jumping into a fad of the day or some new tech gadget. And by the way, people make a fortune on that stuff, but a lot of it's one in a million. What can you invest in that has fundamentals, that's predictable, that has cash flow, and reinvest that capital and start compounding that capital? I think the, the best words of advice I could give is, and this is, once again, I learned from Warren Buffett, the quicker you could create a compounding machine, the faster you're going to become wealthy. And in the beginning, it might move very slowly, but then over time, it begins to explode. So if you just stay disciplined and stay in your plan, and even though other people are going out there and they have some wild ideas and some of them might become wealthy, most of them won't, stick to your plan, stick to your discipline. And over time, if, if you do follow it, you'll become wealthy. Yeah, I love that. I love that so much. I think that when I was looking for investment advice before I found real estate and passive investing and multifamily and all of this stuff, the reinvesting and the finding the asset classes that make sense and being smart and not you know just investing in the stock market or these random things that can get rich quick kind of a thing was the missing piece. And I think that's a missing piece for majority of the people out there. Not everybody knows about these types of opportunities, unfortunately, and that has become a personal mission for Annie and I to make sure that as many people can find out about these types of investment opportunities, because it's true. Once you start building this machine and it just starts growing and growing and reinvesting, and it kind of takes on a life of its own, as long as you diversify and you make smart decisions. So love that. All right. Last question is, what is one thing that you're doing right now to make the world a better place? Another great question. For me, it, it's finding ways to give back. I guess once you become blessed, you try to think, I don't deserve this. So what could I do 
to make somebody else's life better. So I'm constantly on the lookout. For me, a big thing is my investors. My investors have taken a huge leap of faith in me, especially the ones in the beginning. Now we're more proven and we have a track record. So I would perceive us as less risky. But honestly, in the beginning, I don't think there was any difference, but we were unproven, especially those investors that took that risk on us in the beginning. There's nothing more I want to do than to make them proud. And in doing that, there's a lot of rewards, not only economically, but spiritually in doing that. But even beyond our own investors, which group of people out there needs our help? And what we do is we try to have kind of a broad reach. We go out to our managers and we ask them, what in the community can we do to help? And we did a lot of this during COVID. We found local churches. We found local YMCAs. There was all kinds of different outreaches that were there that needed financing during this terrible time that we went through as a country over the last year. And what we did is we told our managers, try to find something where we could give back to your local community. We want you to sponsor it. We want you to find it. And the company didn't write the checks. I wrote the checks. I was actually disappointed that I didn't get more of these requests. We pushed really hard to do this. And every one of those checks that I wrote, when we got letters back, there was one in particular that we hang in our kitchen. It was from a a local hospital in, in a small town in Texas where we own a storage facility. And they were so grateful there was garments that we bought for them and they didn't have the funding for them. So just, you know, little things like that really makes you think, wow, what I'm doing has a purpose, has a meaning, and it's impacting other people's lives in a, in a positive way. So great to see those things. That goes way beyond any financial reward. That's amazing. One more question I'm going to stack on top. Bonus question. All right. Well, if you could talk to that nine-year-old you who's washing dishes today, what would you say to that nine-year-old boy? Wow. That's a good question too. Just tell him, don't give up on what you believe in. Don't give up on your dreams. And a lot of people will tell you, you can't do it. You're not right family. You know, you don't have the right background, but if you really believe in something and I'm and not me, but humanity has proved this time and time again from every background, every race, every part of the world. Those people that really believed in them, themselves in a major way and they refused to let others beat them up or tell them they couldn't do it. Those are the ones in the history books that we all know today. So I would tell that nine-year-old, if you want what you want in life, you could have it. You don't believe anybody that tells you. Well, Matt, you have such an incredible story. I know that our listeners are going to want to follow up and learn more and potentially invest with you. So what's the best place that they can go to learn more? So you could visit our website, www.crystalviewcapital.com or reach out to us via email at invest at crystalviewcapital.com. Matt Riccadella, Principal and Managing Partner of Crystal View Capital. Matt, thank you so much for being here and sharing your story and your wisdom with us and our listeners today. My pleasure. Thank you, ladies. I appreciate your time. It's a lot of fun. You're listening to The Life and Money Show, a podcast that brings you the stories and strategies of people who are living a meaningful and intentional life by design, building true wealth for their families, and impacting the world around them. And now here are your hosts, Annie Dickerson and Julie Lamb.